Hello and welcome to uh, the Still Untitled Podcast. We're going to have to figure that out, guys. Uh, I'm Rob Long, coming to you from foggy and cold San Francisco. On the line with me, as always, is John Pedoritz in New York City. John, how are you? I'm very well, Rob. Why are you in San Francisco? Well, I had a couple, we had some ricochet business to attend oh. to. And, and then tomorrow I'm going to this, uh, this thing I'll talk to you about. Um, I, I don't know what it's going to be like, and, and, um, but we have to first introduce the third of our trio, Jonah Goldberg in Washington, D.C. Jonah, how are you? I am well, sir. Good to hear are you. And you are in D.C.? I am in D.C. You're, you're within the Beltway. You're in the Beltway. You're in the Beltway bubble. I am in the middle of the American Enterprise Institute, so I am in the, I'm in the sanctum sanctorum of right wing inside the Beltway. That's right. So while you really, as far as you're concerned, these poll numbers are just, they're just skewed, right? You have to reweight the averages or something? Totally. And we've got, we've got little kids with propeller beanies here who are reweighting <laughs> them as we speak. I, was I, actually- love this, I love this whole reweighting thing because I think <clears throat> I am now going to reweight my actual body weight. <laughs> That's right. Um, your leg is not – I feel is- that the scale is overestimating the number of calories <laughs> in my body – by, I'd say, outside the margin of error. <clears throat> so, um, I actually weigh 174. What's sort of like that? Remember that, that scale at the Smithsonian that gives you your weight on different planets? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, I just figured, you know, hey, look, I'm Martian. <laughs> <laughs> um, Someone well, has to work in reweighting for Godot into this conversation. That's but anyway. oh, no, no I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not ready for that. Um, okay. <laughs> not ready for that at all. Uh, so uh, uh, I'm up here actually um, um, for a bunch of reasons, but, also, but tomorrow I'm going to this thing, this uh, Freedom Something event, which I'm sure has a name, um, and which I'll, I'll vamp a little bit as I look it up because I don't think it's fair for me not to use the name. Um, and um, um, among the guests, the, the Freedom Forum, the San Francisco Freedom Forum is having an event tomorrow, and um, there's a bunch of guests. And among the, one of the panelists um, is Aung San Suu Kyi. Oh, cool. Wow. Yeah. What I thought was weird is that she's one of the panelists. It's like, yeah, yeah, she's, you would, you, yeah, you would think, yeah, so it's, it's like her yeah. and uh, Ezra Klein. Fluke <laughs> and um, uh, Amanda Marcotte uh, right. of Slate. And Janine Garofalo. Engineering Graffalo, right, and uh, and uh, Paula um, Poundstone. Actually, as, as I look at it, she does give a, a she does give a, a, um, a sort of a speech at, at, at dinner. But before that, they they make her do a couple of panels. And I have to tell you, there's nothing worse than a panel. Either either, but the only thing worse than being on a panel is having to watch a panel. People love them. I I, I don't. Uh, how how much time in our lives, Jonah, have we spent? either being on a panel or watching a panel. I, I can't even begin to calculate. It is, it's, like, it's like going to church if you're a policy wonk. Yeah, if I mean, you're I, like being a devout, like being a very devout religious person going to, going to church or to temple or to a mosque, you know, a couple a week, you know, you hit at least a couple a week. Um, my rule of thumb, though, of, uh, at least of Washington panels, is that the the most famous person on the panel, and sometimes you have to have a debate about who the most famous person on a panel is, but usually the debate is over who's the least famous person. But um, the most famous person on the panel or the biggest mover and shaker on the panel is always 
the least prepared and the least interesting. Well, why because should he prepare? That's the point. That's is right. that, is that, <laughs> and so they always sort of just they just sort of stumble in, you know, sweaty from the road and and just blather sweaty. on and say whatever they want to they say. They have to be sweaty in your world, right? They can't just they can't stumble in from the cold. They have to Well, stumble for in. me it's projection and I'm I'm just constantly sweating. So, um and uh and meanwhile the the lesser known people they think it's a big deal to be on this panel with this more famous person. Right. And so they always put in the work. And um so there's always this sort of inverse proportion of sort of interesting to um to uh fame I I've, I've found. Uh, but but don't I mean I guess we should all be prepared for panels, right? I mean, as true conservatives, we we have two two possible outcomes after November sixth. One is, um, you know, wilderness years. We lost uh, the 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 American people rejected our our rejected our core beliefs. We failed again. Miserable. Uh, how do we do this ritual bloodletting? Lots of panels about that. But then the other one, I think, for, for equally for conservatives is, oh, my God, we elected this guy. He's president now. He's going to betray us. He's thinking about betraying us. He's already going wobbly. Uh, the, the, the entire cabinet's filled with squishes. We, we've set ourselves back 20 years. We should have lost. Um, <laughs> either way, I think there, the, at least two of you, may, maybe even me, will end up on a, lo- a whole lot of panels talking about that. I, I think you have now diagnosed the deep masochistic streak at the heart of the conservative movement because it's no longer just standing athwart history shouting stop. It is it is standing as history passes by you shouting, why didn't you stop before? They should have stopped five years ago. That's right. right, right. I, they should have stopped in 1871. Yeah, you weren't even really a thwart, were you? You were a thwart means they can't get That's by. Right, you weren't a thwart enough. I was a thwart. <laughs> Don't tell me who was a thwart. I stood a thwart history when history before there even was history. Right, but then, that's then how a thwart I am. But then there'll be a rogue group that will be bragging about their uh, premature thwartism. Right? Remember the communists who were premature anti-fascists? Yeah. There will be this whole other segment of premature anti anti uh, premature thwartism. Yeah, we were well, saying this, history this, were way this, way before that. Uh, this gets to a very interesting point about, you know, sort of like the general mood and spirit of the, you know, of the of the political season. Um, Here goes John. That, he's going to be he's going to be a thwartier than thou now. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> no, I actually I'm going to I'm going to be thwart. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to be thwart, not a thwart. <laughs> what is what is striking about the the present political moment is. Uh, how little ownership there is of Mitt Romney in the on the right, and one of the things that's going on as as the the polls are are showing such distressing numbers for him is um, the fact that there is a general there's no rallying around him. For the grotesque unfair, there's a bit of it, but not you know not in the same way that is true of other has been true of other candidates. That there's a kind of puzzled question about why isn't he changing his approach? Why? What are they thinking in the campaign headquarters? What's and because there's no sense of real connection to him and you know where he stands and where he is, which means that you know. Uh, which I don't think is true, but assume 
there's a kind of really serious meltdown over the next month. Um, the post-morteming really will begin early. I mean, on the right as well as it's, it's already starting on the left. But I mean, the real, in other words, okay, we know he's lost and the the knives are going to come out in a way that I don't think we have seen on, on the right toward Romney and toward that campaign. We've seen little hints of it, but we will, we, we, no one will ever have seen this before. It didn't happen to Dukakis. You know, it didn't happen to Dole. It didn't even happen to Mondale. It will happen to Romney in a really, really sig- significant way. And there's, cause there are so many rewards to it also. Every, no one, no one also, feels to be, that. To, to be fair, uh, John, Bob Dole passed away, you know, just three days after that election. Oh, come on! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And also, we, we should emphasize the if here, right? I mean, all is not lost. Total if. No, I, I genuinely don't. I mean, I am very much in the camp that says I don't think there's a conspiracy, and I don't think the media are are doing anything to control the polls. But I think it's utterly inarguable that at least at the state level that the polls are wildly overstating Obama's support. Um, you know, you don't have to take my word for it as a conservative or our word for it as a conservative. Adam Smith, who is a who is the chief leading political reporter in Florida who writes for the Tampa Bay Times, took a look at this Quinnipiac poll that had uh, Obama up by 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 seven or something like that, which which had an oversampling of Demo- nine nine, there was a nine percent advantage of Democrats responding in the poll, and he said, and he's no conservative, he's no I said this is insane, that absolutely preposterous. Democrats will be lucky to have a three point advantage, you know, on 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 election day. So I really genuinely so that, that goes without saying. That, that anybody who has a three-point advantage on election day is lucky. That's the, that, no, that is no, that, no. that is what no, you're going for. <laughs> just party registration. That doesn't right. mean oh, I see. This means the number of Democrats who come to the polls. There, you know, th- who tell exit pollsters that their Democrats will be three points <laughs> higher than Republicans. Similarly, in you know, in Ohio, in these polls where he's up, where uh, Obama is up eight or nine or ten, you have a you have ten or eleven. Uh, percentage points more Democrats and Republicans, and it's you know, and and then that number was seven in two thousand and eight. So I really genuinely believe that the polls are wildly overestimating Obama's support. I also think that they show that Romney is behind, and he's consistently behind everywhere. It's probably two or three points, and that's a serious thing. And he better calculate that he's got to lap Obama and win. You know, he's not going to. Doing what he continues to do with this same result is uh, right. Is, I mean, I think I think the gist of it is, is these polls are bad. They're not as bad as they look, but they're still bad. But he has to campaign as if they're absolutely accurate. Right. And right. and campaign is and campaign is obviously behind. And you know, one of the I mean, because it does seem to me, I mean, at some point, you know, poor John, he's going to be standing in a doorway and in. in you know, in the Bowery, asking people for cross tabs. He's so addicted to these polls, and <laughs> that's right. Um, and no, seriously, uh, seriously, just just one, just one. Yeah, <laughs> come on. What do you got from Quinni- Quinnipiac? Come on. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, Has the Quinnipiac stuff come in yet? Um, now that actually be a pretty this good. This is another. This is another very serious. I mean, I don't want to like jump on the Romney campaign. This bad thing, but this is actually another serious problem with the Romney campaign, which is 
they're not supplying any meat. Well, that's what I was just so going to say. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I was going to say one of the reasons why we're all talking about polls is because they're not giving us anything else to talk about. They're not picking fights. They're not picking arguments yeah. that recruit their own side um, to the cause. And it's a real problem. There's, where's the, I mean, every I mean, every presidential season. I mean, it doesn't even I mean, I, as far back as I can remember. Uh, people have said, this is the dirtiest one. This is the ugliest one. This is going to be the most negative. Um, and, and people have been saying that about this one for, I mean, really, for, for, for nine months. Where is it? Where, where are the swift boats? I keep when, I, I mean, why, why aren't we getting negative I don't here? think it's not is... negative. I don't think it's all. I mean, it's, not a good th- it's not a good campaign, but it's a lame campaign. It's not a nasty campaign. The no, way no, that's what be. I mean. Shouldn't yeah. it be? Where, where is that? No, by, the way, even the, by the way, even the Obama campaign, I mean, this argument that this is like an unprecedentedly terrible campaign. I mean, in 2004, you not only had the swift votes against Kerry, you had this you know, allegation that Bush had failed to secure a million firearms at the Al-Qaeda right. arms dump. <clears throat> you know, you had... You had um, you know, you had pr- prisons in Iraq. You had, you had. I mean, that was ugly. That was as ugly a campaign as we've ever seen. And substantively, by the way, I mean, it wasn't just that it was mean. It was that you know the substance of the discussion was Bush is a lying mass murderer, or Kerry is a sort of semi war criminal. That's ugly. This is Romney's an out of touch rich guy. You know who says stupid things or you know <laughs> obama i mean the campaign is doing nothing to stimulate any real anti-obama talk personally uh, romney's doing the opposite yeah i care about the middle he cares about the poor people like him they like me you know there's all this <laughs> I there's know. all this sort of don't you crazy miss those, don't you miss those great <laughs> negative ads you know what do we really know about yeah Congressman Joe, Joan Smith, you know, the, all that when it gets grainy and dark or even the der- derisive ones, that great derisive voiceover, like uh, uh, you'd think that the taxpaying uh, families would, would deserve a break. Congressman Smith doesn't think so. And yeah. like, you know, that, yeah. where's that stuff? That stuff, I, I mean, I, even just for the theater of it, if we have to sort of sleepwalk to, till November 6th, at least give us some good TV. Well, we're all sleep. I mean, I, I guess Jonahism because he lives, you know, near Virginia. But you know, you live in California. I live in New York. We're sleepwalking because we're seeing nothing. I mean, if you live in Ohio and Wisconsin and Florida, you yeah. are not sleepwalking. I mean, you are. This is a you know something like fifteen percent of the of the of the uh, available advertising time in these states is being taken up with political advertising. But am I wrong to want Willie Horton? Where's Willie Horton? That was good right. stuff. Remember, Willie Horton was a flyer. Willie Horton was a gigantic disaster, uh, self-perpetrated in some ways by the by the Dukakis campaign because a flyer was put out talking about Willie Horton, the felon who had been put on furlough and then you know killed somebody furlough a furlough prison program in Massachusetts. And um, as a result of a, a story in a liberal newspaper, which, which, which revealed this, and it was the Dukakis campaign screaming about the racism of the flyer that was put out that ignited the story again. I mean, that was a classic act of, you know, misdirected jujitsu uh, disaster. Um, if they had kept their mouth shut, it's not clear that it would have surfaced again. So, you know, politics is very weird. Lots of weird stuff going on. You know, right now, early voting has started in Iowa. 
And so the Democratic Party in Iowa has ginned up lines around the block in Des Moines to, to have pictures showing people doing early voting. Now, that is meaningless. 100% of people who are early voters are committed voters. They would have voted on Election Day. They would have voted the same way. That they're coming out early does means absolutely nothing. That is not how voter enthusiasm is measured. That's measured by turnout on Election Day. But so it's all to create a kind of um, – you know, an image of a of a of a of a steamroller rolling down the block, right? And you know, there's a lot of that. It's the you know, it's it's uh, Plato's cave. You know, it's shadows reflected against the wall that the that you know, low information people think are the gods and are the you know are terrible monsters, but they're just shadows. And you know, the real question is: At what point do people are people making substantive judgments? Have they made a substantive judgment on Romney or on Obama, or are they, or are all these judgments, you know, soft and imagey and mushy? Because of course, you know, it's also today we have this complete meltdown in durable goods orders. You know, that's cars, anything, right, anything right. that's going to last a while. I mean, worst numbers that anybody ever expected. We had a downward revision of the of the GDP worse than anybody expected that indicates that you know the economy is going to remain growing at a little more than one percent um, numbers that if you had said two years ago Obama would have people would assume that he would simply just sort of like fall down in the yeah he turned he turned right. into dust right so is that going to make any difference? Is it not going to make any difference? What ha- at the debates, will the substantive things at the debates matter or will it just be whether somebody gets a good soundbite off? Right. Who knows? Well, I, you know, I was, I was sitting outside last night in, in, in Palo Alto, which is a fairly, you know, almost exclusively liberal town. And I was talking to a friend of mine about the election. And, uh, and then there were two sort of business guys look like, you know, venture capitalist kind. You know, the, they're, in, they're in the, they're very, they're the uniform of the venture capitalist in the Silicon Valley, which is like very, very, very expensive khakis from somewhere that kind of have a slight shimmer to them. And then a very, very expensive shirt and, a, and an expensive belt and expensive watch and that's it. You know, like kind of golf dudes, um, and they were talking about the election, and these two guys were saying rather confidently, uh, talking about the, the the poll in Florida and the polls in Ohio and how they're not weighted properly; they need to be weighted properly because, you know, uh, and 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 sort of everybody, every everyone's turned into this expert. Everyone's turned into a uh, uh, you know a campaign consultant. Um, but I, it does seem to me that we're we are <laughs> we're trying to conjure up a narrative. Where something else happens, something's about to happen. The debates will change it; they'll turn it all around. Um, and maybe we're just in this weird zone where we are what we are. We got what we got, right? I mean, it doesn't no. But I mean, that's this is where that's implausible. I mean, it is. It is September. What is it? Twenty sixth, twenty seventh. As we're talking, twenty eighth. I mean, September. September twenty seventh. So twenty seventh. So here we are. There, you know, there's five weeks to go. It's or five and a half weeks to go. That's, you know, an endless amount of time. I mean, all kinds of things can happen. And this notion that everyone's mind is made up is clearly preposterous. There, there's been a theory of this race, which is, you know, Obama gets 46% and Romney gets 46%, which means that there's only 8% in the middle that can be persuaded. But that's a false sense of consciousness because... In the end, what you can presume is that people will – that given the nature of the electorate now, that each party has a floor of like 46 percent, right? So – but that doesn't mean that 
in that 46% aren't people who will end up gravitating and going in there regardless. The, the, the number of persuadables is far higher. I mean, there are, people are, say they're independents. They are, they're, not as, they're not as high as they used to be. It used to be a third of the electorate was undecided two or three weeks was that ever, was, that, was that true, though? Oh, yeah, absolutely it was true. Don't you think you know, people kind of like... Mean, the famous story is that, the, is that, is that the, the national stats moved, according to Dick Worthlin, who was Reagan's pollster. This was at a time when, in 1980, when, when interestingly enough, media organizations stopped polling in the last week because they weren't sure that they could get the right kind of sample. And according to him, he was doing a tracking poll. After that debate... Six percentage point, you know, the the country shifted toward Reagan. Mm-hmm. Six percentage points, which if you actually think of what that means in terms of the number of people whose minds hadn't been made up who moved, it's a colossal number. You know, because again, figure was like 45, 45, or it wasn't 45 because Carter only got 40, but say it was like 40, 40. And basically 70 to 80 to 90 percent of the people who hadn't made up their minds moved that week. So now we think everyone's lined up, uh, you know, but I, I don't see any evidence that that's, I don't think the numbers aren't the same, but you know, why wouldn't they be persuadable? I mean, Obama is, is not breaking 50, you know, in some of these right. state polls that are overweight, he's not breaking 50% in popularity. Jonah, do you buy that? I mean, I want to, I want to believe it. It's, it's but I don't cheerful. know what that means. He can see he's still losing. That doesn't mean he's not yeah. losing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, I, I buy that. Simply by by the very nature of people who are undecided at this point means that they are – that even if they tell a pollster today that they've decided, doesn't mean they've really decided. Um, I got to say I am, I, am, I am against all of this early voting stuff. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm an outlier on, on voting in general. I think voting should be harder. Yeah. I think – I think it should be. I think you if, you va- if you value something as a society, you should raise its price, not lower its price. Yeah, you should. Uh, you, you, there are certain things that should not be rocked, and the vote is one of those things that should not be rocked. Right, and and there's this. Um, and I don't want to get into the whole youth voting thing, but you know, there's this idea that somehow if we could only get more of the ignorant and less informed people who vote on the, with their glands involved in politics. All of our policies will be better, <laughs> and um, right. I just think that's all ludicrous. And so, you know, it's it sort of it is absolutely true because that there are some very smart, well-informed late deciders, and some of them are very wait, smart. Really? Wait, really? Yeah, there are some. Oh come but on! Most of them, really? most of them are not. And I was going to say, wait, are you really suggesting there are some people who are smart who just really have made up their mind yet? I think there's some people who just really hate politics and don't pay attention, and they just they, they tune in. I was listening to an interview with this guy who was apparently the successful, smart. He was a very articulate guy. I was listening to an interview with him on NPR, and he was explaining with as much as you could tell over radio a straight face um, that his, <laughs> his method for deciding how and when to vote is he waits the di- till the night before election day and then works the Google machine. <laughs> and and looks up these two guys. And on the one hand, I was like so horrified That's actually by it. Brilliant. But on the other hand, I was like, all right, you know. <laughs> I mean, is it really less yeah. healthy to spend the last you know eighteen months 
um, not paying attention to all of this nonsense and then tuning in towards the end? I, I, I don't know. But it has the added benefit you never have to encounter uh, Chris Matthews. That's right. That's right. <laughs> who, apparently, who apparently last night, uh, just for the record, I hope this doesn't date the podcast too much, but let's just say recently. That's what they usually tell you when they don't want you no, to no, say what No, no, it's going up. It's going up. Okay, so uh, towards the end of this week, Chris Matthews, I, I haven't seen the video, but it, it exploded on Twitter. Uh, apparently got into a very long extended metaphor about Romney and Ryan being married and started openly wondering who's on top. And it, <laughs> it just kept going. And he kept basically he was asking, it, it was, it, I've seen the transcript of it. It's really sort of absolutely disgusting. And you got to wonder what kind of email he's getting today about it. <laughs> um, I think, Wrong. Easy, easy. <laughs> <laughs> he's so worked out, you know. He's like he's in such great shape. But then I, you don't really know. I mean, I'm, it's it's kind of a, it's one of those weird. Um, it's a May December thing. Yeah, you got to wait for the Today Show to ask him. Right. You do not have to ask with the others with the other side, though. Let's be honest. <laughs> you know exactly uh, if if there's anyone in the cell block putting on the lipstick. All right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Move along. <laughs> It's move, vice president. Let's move it um, along now. Oh, this is a perfect time. Hold on. This is a perfect time. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you, John. By the way, uh, because I, it's a little early here, and I, I don't have my, um, I, I don't have my, my, my sense of decorum up yet. It, it um, this is if you're listening to this of uh, the Ricochet podcast with John Podoritz, Jonah Goldberg, and me, Rob Long. It's coming to you. I think you're getting it on. You can hear it on the commentary site. You can hear it on NRO. You can hear it on Ricochet.com. You can get it on Stitcher. It is a production of Ricochet.com. If you haven't been, please go. It is the fastest growing, smartest, most civil conversation on the web between contributors and among contributors and members. We would like you to join. Go to Ricochet.com. Join the conversation. Um, that's it. That's the only pitch I got, really. Um, Google, speaking of the Google machine, is 14 years old today. Did you know that? I did. I did know that. Is it, uh, is it, <laughs> is it hormonal? Oh. Is it slamming? Is it like slamming doors and saying, <laughs> you don't understand <laughs> yeah. me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hate your values. Um, I'm vegan, by the way. Uh, no, it, I, I don't Do think. Do you get a tattoo? It, Does it have a piercing? <laughs> did, it, you know, did it come back with some uh, is it hanging out with the wrong people um, it, it's reading Atlas Shrugged under the bleachers uh, <laughs> that's <right>. if only <laughs> that's, that's, that's the uh, Jonah Googleberg um, I, 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 it, is, it is astonishing to me that 14 years it's only been 14 years and this thing it, it, it must certainly be one of the most interesting and changing um, benefits of being um, a grown up Right, uh, in the in the in the web age, but also how fast things change. I mean, like, the only thing I want to, I want to bring that up because uh, two weeks ago, I think it's two weeks ago or, or earlier this week, uh, Apple released their new phone, the iPhone five, I think it's called, or the iPhone four. I can't remember. Um, um, As if you don't have it, I don't have it. I really don't. I, although I looked at one last night, kind of longingly, um, and then the guy, the, the the Genius Bar guy, came up to me and said, uh, "Yeah, dude, we're out. So just so you know, we're out. Like so." Don't even ask. Um, but the map function, have you guys been following this? Yes. Oh, it's a scandal. The scandal of the map function. Oh, the map function is terrible. <laughs> what a horrible map function. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm outraged by the map function. Get rid of the map. I mean, this map function. If I, I hear one more word about that map function. 
Well, what I can't believe is that who Apple needs a map has... function on your phone? You don't need the map function on your phone. Yes, oh, I like the you map, need the map function. function on your computer on your phone. When it's like, oh look, I'm walking down a street. Well, what, I was, what I'm astounded by though is that Apple was so stupid as to hire the NFL replacement refs to do their map coding. It's just, <laughs> it's just outrageous. Sorry, it's the other great scandal. I, hear, of the I mean, I, I don't have it, but a friend of mine had it, showed it to me. So basically the, the, the mistake that they made evidently is that they're so excited to show you the actual building. You know, it has like this panoramic shot where you can actually see the physical, uh, you know, the land that you're like sailing on, uh, over as though you're like the camera at the beginning of The Sound of Music, you know, going over the hills and dales that they, that they, got, the, they got the graph. You know the graph part wrong and the map wrong. But, he jumped uh, on the deathbed. He, he called the engineers closer. Come closer. I want it to look like the sound of music. And then he died. <laughs> um, no, no. It's well. That's that's I, that is the that is a way of looking at this through the prism of somebody who lives in Manhattan and doesn't drive, and kind of knows. I where drive. He's... I just have a GPS in my car. Do you have a GPS in your car? Yeah, but it's stupid. I I'm know. Not... I know. But is your phone smarter? phone is much smarter it used how do to, you how do you use the if you're driving and you've got your you got your phone and it's sitting it doesn't have any place to sit my i have no dashboard to put one of those cutesy things to plug my phone in so i couldn't use it for that anyway so well you got that's get my that. complaint okay fine i actually the the, the the point is that that google google has a map google was delivering the maps to apple and the, those google maps are terrific but in a in a sort of internecine war um, Apple decided to kick Google off the iPhone and to, uh, we'll do our maps ourselves, they said. And then, they, they, and then they, they shipped a really, really bad product. And it just, I think it just shows you that six months ago, nine months ago, 12 months ago, Apple as a company could do no wrong. I mean, every single article about Apple was how perfect it was and how it had sort of nailed this sort of con- consumer electronic product uh, 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 process and system and marketing, the whole sort of constellation of things you need to ship these great products and now suddenly there's this bad map but it kind of shows you how quickly things can change in this world and so what i wanted to say was like google's the biggest thing ever but don't you think there i mean seems to me like the great thing about the web or however you want to look at it the tech space is that these guys can can collapse in a month uh, it doesn't take General Motors twenty five year the twenty five years to sort of this slow, stately Ottoman Empire like decline. It just sort of snaps and pretty soon people are laughing at you. Well, I mean they did sell they did sell twelve million phones. So you <laughs> know, I'm pri- I don't think I th- you know, I really don't think that's a big <laughs> somehow <laughs> I still think they sold twelve million phones in a week. That's you know that's a that's a you know what is that that's like a billion dollar a couple billion dollar gross out of you know out of nowhere you know for in your a analogy in your analogy the Hulk is falling apart because he has a hangnail. I mean, look, <laughs> they can also they can they can revisit it. You know, if if it's too bad for them, they'll they'll put Google they'll allow Google Maps back on as an app, and then that'll be that. You know, it's um, that's the one difference. I mean, I do think it is a fascinating thing to watch these companies. Uh, go to war with each other because it it, it is a reminder that um, while our politics uh, has achieved this sort of condition of dysfunctionality where it really matters, like where dollars and cents are involved and, you know, 
like real serious non-abstract things are happening that involve very plain issues of who's in control of what where and all of that nobody makes any bones about it you know they know exactly what they're doing they know exactly what their numbers are they sue each other they use they use whatever means they can um and it, it's interesting that you know in politics everybody battles to a draw in this ridiculous scorched earth way and in and in actual business you know there's a there's a real you know, there's a real sense that you can win and you can lose and that you use your power to do stuff. To, it's, a, it's a strange thing. I'm not, my, this analogy is not working out precisely as I had wished. But, well, the, <laughs> no, I was interested to see where, where it was going to go. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, move on. Forget it. Yeah, all right, so the point I was going to make, where I do agree with you, Rob, and I was probably a little too harsh, but uh, the – it's an amazing thing to look at the Fortune 500 companies from like 30, 40 years ago or even 10 or 20 years ago and see how much turnover there is. Uh, I think that's like – it's basically built in that there's like a 50 percent turnover rate into the Fortune 500 list. And yet when – pick any moment in the last 70, 80 years uh, and you'll hear liberals in Congress. You'll hear Hollywood. You'll, you'll find writer – intellectual writers talking about corporate America – with this sense of permanence that borders on the metaphysical, this idea that these are these incredibly powerful evil companies that control our lives, and yet you fast forward 20 years later and you know the Ramjack Corporation is now run out of a strip mall in Tuscaloosa. Right. Um, and it is, it is, a, it is a, the, creative, you know, the creative destruction of American capitalism is a miraculous thing, but there's something about our own imagination that we can't imagine – that uh, Google won't be Google in 10 years. But 10 years ago, we couldn't imagine that Microsoft would sort of be almost a B-team player compared to where right. it, you know, it was. And I, I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing about capitalism. But for some I, reason, the culture we, can't accommodate it. We, we can't seem to celebrate it. I mean, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not really sure why. It's this weird kind of oh, – uh, we're overly sensitive to the idea that Businesses change and close and shift and and I mean I, I remember I mean you, we're all old enough on this podcast to remember that there was a time where every third commercial you saw on network television back in the days when network television really reached people was for your long distance carrier yeah Sprint and MCI and there were a few others that the long distance carrier was the most and and that you could talk to grandma for. You know, the, the for twenty cents less a minute or, or ten cents less a minute or something, and and or or you'd you'd walk around with a card and you could pick up a phone and you dialed an eight hundred number which gave you the access to your Sprint you know account and then you dialed the number you wanted and then you dialed your Sprint code and that was normal and that was not that was really was not that long ago was it twenty years ago maybe tops and everything's changed now and we don't I mean. Do, do we say, oh, what about, oh, those poor people used to work for MCI? But, you know, it, there is one interesting longer-term issue, which is, of course, that the mid-century uh, Fortune 500 companies employed colossally vast numbers of people, a lot of them. And these companies now that dominate them are much, much smaller in terms of the personnel that they hire, or at least that they have hired in the United States. And it, 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 there is a real difference there. That you know, I mean, the you know when the when the big three automakers were, I think the three of the five largest companies in the United States, they employed something like 
4% of the American workforce. I mean, it was some, or they and their affiliated businesses employed a colossal number of people. And yeah. Apple and Google employ, what, 10, 15,000 each? I mean, it, it's very small. It was like that. It was like that weird thing that happened with Enron when Enron went broke and there was all this, oh, my God, look at this. It's a 70 billion. Call- what about the pensions of the poor <laughs> workers of Enron? And then it turned out that Enron, which was, of course, a complete fraud, it was a shell, right. had 11,000 people working for it, a company with a market cap at the time that it started going broke of $70 billion. And it had 11,000 people working for it because it wasn't, you know, it actually wasn't real. These are real businesses, obviously. Right. But that is a, that is a gigantic difference. And it does, it does speak to this one problem that, you know, that the sort of the right has to take account of, which is that um, a lot of the, a lot of the money that is now made in the, in the country by companies that make it, um, trickles down in a less obvious way than it used to you know so if what was good for general motors was good for america mm-hmm. it's not it's nowhere you know which was a notorious thing to say though arguably true when charlie wilson the head of the guy who had been head of gm and was secretary of commerce said it in the 50s it's less true that what's good for apple is good for america in an odd right. way because it right. doesn't it doesn't have the same you know, it's not like a, a big enveloping, you know, massive industrial concern that employs and, and the, the people who – and then they spread their wealth and all of that. So it's a trickier problem. I mean the creative destruction has led to a different kind of economy than we used to have. Yeah, but we've also – I mean I, I agree with that entirely. But it's – we don't – I mean this is one of the reasons I have to the extent I'm not a pure – cranky old man when it comes to youth politics and all this one of the sources of optimism i have is that we've got this let me back up first of all it's important to remember what a boon some of this technological stuff is yeah. uh when we were kids i mean remember remember the first time you saw a car with electric windows you thought this was and this is why kids of our generation played with electric windows for hours on end we thought they were so fascinating. Little kids today, they just take them for granted <laughs> and move on. But I mean, I thought this was like entertainment to be able to like it was like Star Trek doors to be able to open and close a window with a button. And now, oh, you so know, sad. a low, low, low end car, you know, uh, I don't know, a Kia, bottom line Kia is more of a luxury car than a Mercedes was 25 years ago in terms of the features that it has. The th- you know the replacement effect that we have for our technology. When you think about what a phone does, and that some teenager, if he works a little harder or saves his money a little longer, can have a phone that does more than his computer, his stereo, his TV, and his phone did 15 right. years ago is amazing. Right. And so this brings me to a political point. You know, I'm a big um, I, I, one of my problems with young conservatives, and I talk to them about this whenever I get the chance. Is well, you're because- on panels. When you're when I'm on panels. panels. I, I've made this point on panels, in fact. Um, <laughs> you know, young conservative, especially the really smart sort of eggheady ones, uh, they really want to have an argument with Nietzsche or Rousseau or Herbert Crowley or John Dewey. You know, they want to have they want to have intellectual arguments. One of the things I love about conservatism, you know, and that's a big point of my book, you know, that came out you know earlier this summer, the, the Tyranny of Clichés book, was that we love our sort of intellectual history and we wear our ties with right. Friedrich Hayek and Adam Smith. The problem, though, is that 
most of the social change that we attribute to these poisonous thinkers and their ideas that somehow escaped a, a lab in 19th century Germany, um, most of the real changes come from technology. I mean, the car did vastly more to destabilize traditional communities than Nietzsche or Betty Friedan ever did. Right. Um, right. Same thing with the birth control pill. You go down a very long list. And so one of the reasons – and so normally this is – you know, the technological advances do undermine traditional societies and it's something that conservatives should be worried about. But on the flip side, you have this whole generation that is growing up with iPods and iPhones and iPads that are doing these amazing things and yet they're being told if they want to be really cool, they have to vote for the party that is the party of the post office. And right. Right. The distinction between those two things is really huge, and at some point, it's going to have to occur to some of these people that if they want this incredibly flexible economy and society where they get to design their working life on their own terms, it can't be a society where friggin' government labor unions dictate how people live. Right. Well, and you know, the other thing is, I was in I was in synagogue this week because it was Yom Kippur. And I go to a synagogue on the Upper West Side of Manhattan with a very, very smart, very nice friend of mine, very liberal rabbi, who made essentially a speech about, uh, gave his sermon about um, tax policy, <laughs> using no, but using using sort of Jewish law, Jewish tradition to make the case that a progressive taxation system is what. Jewish law envisions and that Judaism, what Judaism knows about how society should be formed is that it's a communitarian religion and it believes that the, you know, the, the wealthier have an obligation to the poor, that this is a, this is a religious obligation, not just a personal moral, but the moral obligation comes from God and, and all that. And it was sort of very, it was, a, it was true and it was sort of interesting to hear it. And of course the, the, the parody of it is, or the self-parodic quality of it was that, you know, we live in a country in which a great many people pay 30 to 35 to 40% of their gross income or more in taxes. And we are forced, we are forcibly communitarian and all of the, um, and, and this notion somehow that we are insufficiently communitarian because we are this is all sort of taken from us as a matter of law and that we should therefore we should do even more um gives you a gives you a glimpse into sort of the obama is thinking which is that w- what we are being told is that not enough is being taken not enough is being taken more should be taken if more is taken more can be given but of course that's not under under those circumstances, expecting people to be generous and though they are, and to be you know uh, open their wallets to help people of their own volition, and they do is it becomes less and less uh, easy simply because the state is taking all of the goods to give them to the post office. Right. Whereas right. your whereas your kid with his with his iPad and his iPhone might, as is always the case, have a better idea how best to use his resources to help people but, who are less fortunate in his community. But I guess that's what I mean is that, 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 that I think just to follow up on Jonah's point, the, the, the consumer actions of millions of consumers, millions, especially millions of young consumers is you get a product. These are expensive things, by the way. Young people find the money to buy these expensive phones. I mean not just the 
iPhone, but all the uh, Android, Samsung stuff, or your computer, and you, you instantly start to set your preferences. You instantly customize it for you. You join Facebook and you customize it for you. There's all this, this whole effort, giant industries built on making this product you and specific to you. And yet those same young people have this kind of crackpot view of you – know, they, they don't expect that level of service or granularity from their healthcare system. The healthcare they want, to, they want that to be state-of-the-art 1974. But if you gave them a 1974 phone or 1974 right. computer, they would look at you like you're crazy. They would look at you oh, like – By the way, but if you think about it, that makes perfect sense because the truth is that though we hear you know, the, the notorious 47 percent collect benefits and all of that, that you know, Romney uh, – terrible thing Romney said – the truth is that one of the reasons that, that young people can vote emotionally about who's cool and who's this and how I feel about things is that, is that it's all abstract to them. Not, none of this is real. They don't pay taxes yet. They don't, you know, they don't, have a, they don't get a check, so they don't see the bite, uh, you know, the payroll tax. Right. They, have no, they have no – they have very little sort of relation to what it is that government does. Even, you know, not, you know, and they don't feel it. And so it becomes a kind of, um, you know, preference poll or like a Nielsen family turning on a show and saying, saying what they like. And, and when it actually comes to things that they expect service for or bang for their buck or something that they know about, they are as discerning and, and critical and expect and full of expectation uh, as as anybody else would be, and the, yeah, this I mean, is always the question on the right: is why is it that the taxpayer? Wh- where is the taxpayer's expectation of government? And you know that the big issue of what you know Obama did in his convention in his speech was say, "Don't expect so much from me." You you know I mean I got I I I, I got handed a really bad hand. I'm trying. You know, look, I'll I'll try even harder next time, but you just can't expect that much from me. But it was weird. It's and almost like what, why what he not? Said was, almost like he said, like like um, I'm gonna do. We're gonna do. We're gonna do more for you, and we're gonna be involved in more parts of your life, and we're gonna start to administrate parts of your of your life that never, the government never administrated before. But don't expect it to be good. The expectations are don't expect it to to actually be high quality. But we're going to do it anyway. He didn't say – he never said don't, don't expect the, the government's going to do less. He just said don't expect it to do what it does well. But I think just about him personally, that was the, you know, the brilliance of the Bill Clinton speech was he couldn't turn it around. Nobody could have turned this around. He can't turn it around. Don't expect this of him. So in, in essence, he's saying, yeah, I did the stimulus and it didn't work. Yeah, I did Obamacare and you don't really like it. Yeah, the deficit, the, the the debt is up by five trillion. Yeah, I spent two and a half trillion dollars that we didn't really have. Just don't don't blame me for that. I'm I'm trying, and you know you you're not going to really feel it. You don't do you feel it now? I mean, most of you don't really feel it. You know, ninety two percent of you are employed. You know, come on. I mean, and the interesting thing is that is that the pitch seems to have worked to some degree because. It is true nobody has that great an expectation of government. Nobody expects anything except that their Social Security check should arrive or that their, or that their you know, Medicare uh, system work you know, sort of mechanically. I mean those are the two real big 
things that in, people are involved with in government or you know, tens of millions of people are involved with in government. But people have learned that government doesn't work for them. You know, and they and and mm-hmm. American people aren't you know don't don't revolt, and there are no revolutions, and it's not our our way. But they they know you know you want a bus, it doesn't come. You want to you know your school isn't very good. You know, uh, the gar- every couple of years, your garbage man is going to go on strike. Uh, you know, it takes them ten, it takes them two years right. to fix the highway. Right, and, you right. know, it become, that's the new normal. The new normal is that people have very low expectations of government and they have no reason to have low expectations of government. Yeah, you know, I, I why have... should they have low expectations of government? You know, we're paying 30 to 40 percent of our income to government. Yeah, I mean, when you think about, like, I mean, it's an overused stat these days. What, the Empire State Building was built in 14 months, 16 months? Um, yeah, but it's a piece the, of junk. The, the Pentagon was built in in eighteen months. Right. Um, the Big Dig, twenty two years and counting. <laughs> um, that's right. That's right. Uh, the I, you know, the I ninety five corridor or four ninety five corridor between DC and Baltimore. You know, still a piece of work. Uh, you know, it's the we've, and this is one of the great frustrations. Of, I actually don't know any conservatives who are. I mean, I know some libertarians, but I don't know really any normal conservative person who is against infrastructure. Right. I mean, they all like highways. We all like highways. We like aqueducts and aquifers and all that kind of stuff. That's all fine. Let's build that stuff. I personally would love to see, you know, a lot of a lot more tunnels out there so you can get rid of highways. But what people are deeply offended by is being taken. And there's this deep sense that for every dollar that we spend on infrastructure, we only get 10 cents of infrastructure for it. But but what do you mean people are offended by? Who who are these people? Well, I'm talking about me. I'm, okay, I'm talking you, about, you're talking about I, I despair of those people. I don't I don't know where those people are. Those people seem to be voting themselves goodies all the time. Well, I'm talking about us, right? I'm talking about when people yeah. say conservatives are against infrastructure. I actually don't know any conservatives who are against infrastructure. Oh, I, I know a lot yeah. of conservatives against just absolutely mind-boggling, bowel-stewing waste. But that's a different thing. And we get the sense now uh, – uh, uh, what was his name? Um, our friend um, – It'll come to me in a second. Uh, J- Jonathan Rausch, you know, he had this book twenty years ago called Demosclerosis, and his basic argument was that because of interest groups and public labor unions and the way Congress works and feather bedding and log rolling and all these things, that the institutions of government were becoming so caked over and hardened, like art, like hardened arteries and calcified, that you couldn't get important things done. Right. And while I, there's a lot I cannot stand about the old. No offense, John weekly standard American greatness argument or national greatness argument, um, I would be a lot more sympathetic to that national greatness stuff if it didn't end up becoming a euphemism for paying off all of these sort of democratic coalition constituencies. And right. Well, well, look, want to talk about infrastructure. The single greatest <laughs> well, thing that has really, happened. But, right. no, 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 but, no, but, no, but here's the point. So, you know, there's $300 billion for, you know, highways or whatever it is that's spent on highways. And, you know, it's very important that bridges, you know, be shored up. There, there are issues. There were the bridge in Minnesota, bridges, tunnels, things that are actually, you know, sit on stilts and need to be supported and all of that. But if you live in the most of the country, the single best thing that has happened for commuters and for, you know, people driving longer distances as, a, as an infrastructure matter 
was something relatively private, though I think it's administered publicly, which is the creation of the Easy Pass. Yeah. The creation yeah, of the yeah. Easy Pass means that it takes you, on average, if you are a commuter, let's say, again, using my example here, from New Jersey into New York or from Long Island into New York City or something like that, it takes you, on average, 10 minutes less travel time each way. Right. Because you don't have to wait at a toll booth with $5. I mean, you do, but you know, it's, the wait is much less. The drive, let's say, in the Northeast Corridor from New York to Washington is, for, is close to 45 minutes less each way because of the institution of the Easy Pass. So what is that? That is a, that is a computer, a reader, a car, a this, a that. You know, <laughs> it's not – didn't cost $150 billion to implement – it is a money maker. It's you know it's a piece of technology that right. made an enormous and in some ways disruptive you know positively disruptive difference and negative so, but, but also negatively disruptive because of what you told booth uh, toll takers that you don't have to hire right you don't well, have to replace although right. it's, although my sense of it is is that, that that's one of the reasons why it took so long to get Easy Pass is because the those unions wouldn't let it come and they still have to have a couple toll takers at every. You know, right. totally yeah. thing for the people who don't have Easy Pass, right? But anyway, I just think it's an interesting. You know, we find ourselves, as I say. So the, ultimately, the real question here is that there is a division. Maybe the division in the country isn't between the fifty-three percent and the forty-seven percent. This it is actually between people who have who have an expectation that the spending that is done, that the money that is taken from them to be spent by government, that they have expectations that government do it better. And those who have it taken or don't have much of it taken who don't care or who, who are past caring or who don't pay attention. But you have and a whole – That is a real difference and that's, yeah. not even, that's not even an ideological difference. I but mean you do have that a whole... difference can lead people to ideological conclusions but you don't have to be an ideologue to think where the hell is my money going? Why does or it that, take – yeah. Or that you, that you have a reasonable expectation for efficiency and service and all those things and, and a return on your money. I mean you, you don't get that. There are, there are whole groups of, 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 of the population that for whom every encounter is an encounter with essentially the post office, with an unthinking sort of bureaucracy that's slow, that's uh, the complicated, that requires you to stand in line all the time, that requires you to fill out forms. I mean anybody who's ever had to deal with – even I mean, you know, the famous one is always the Department of Motor Vehicles. But anyone ever had to deal with any one of those large groups understands just how terrible these can be. I mean, my my just in the private but sector. Now you don't have to wait online. Now you now that's the interesting thing about yeah. technology. Also, is you can you go there once, but then you can you can get your driver's license in the mail. You can get your passport. In the mail, you can buy stamps online. You never use a stamp because you use email. There's a whole way in which people have been even separated from those aspects of government that used to drive them so crazy that it turned them into neocons. You yeah, know, the, the, they the just problem. have no interface with government whatsoever, except that the money is taken out by by taxes. Yeah, but the problem with that is that um, you have uh, that someone. Or someone or some group of people were very smart starting in the late 80s, early 90s and realized that if you reformed the areas where there's actually something approaching a customer-client relationship, the DMV, um, 
the passport office, uh, easy pass. Uh, it makes government look a hell of a lot more efficient because that's the only place where you actually have interaction. Meanwhile, you know, the District of Columbia, where we spend something like, I don't know, eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars per public school student, and we are ranked um, 100 out of 100 <laughs> in terms of good education of major cities in America, something like 50% of all public school employees are administrators. They're not in the classroom. And it is it is this unbelievable scandal um, because it is it is those places that can maintain this immunity to that customer service experience that are really the more important areas. I mean, let's face it, as, as, as much as I like the convenience of EasyPass and going to the DMV and all that kind of stuff, that's not the really important parts of what government does. But it's the important parts of what government does for me because I'm an upper middle class you know, guy. I'm a two percenter or whatever that um so i guess i'm an upper class guy but you know the the um the the places where government is really screwing up like you know uh, casting an entire generation right. of poor black kids to really crappy educations and and whatnot um that doesn't there is none of that consumer power and the government can get away with it because you don't get people screaming about it except you know in some of these public choice you know school choice videos and whatnot you don't get they don't have the same kind of consumer power and um and, and just to sort of wrap it up i mean the, the the thing that just drives me crazy is this this constant as john was talking about with his rabbi i'm really i love to hear that he's got a liberal rabbi um <laughs> uh that's not what i would have bet but um, are there are there any kind are, are there any other kind i yeah, there are a couple yeah, yeah there are a couple i mean um but the the refrain you constantly get out of obama is this claim relentless claim that of the people who are unwilling to pay their fair share and they turn it into this greed thing. And so now we have this situation where compassion and generosity is your willingness to spend other people's money and greed is your reluctance to spend even more of your own money. And you have these people who are spent vastly, you know, the three of us pay for a lot more government. I mean, this is sort of where the 47% thing is so frustrating because it got so muddled. And yet we're called greedy for thinking that we've been taken because um, our money is not being well spent. I would pay more for, I would actually pay more, happy to pay more taxes if the tax code was simplified and made more sense for economic growth. Um, well, but that's not what that, we're getting. Yeah, but isn't that also, I mean, I mean I'm, 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 I'm a contrarian here. I mean, I agree with you, but isn't it also our fault too? Because we, I think that we are certainly or on the right, definitely the Republican Party is locked in this weird death grip, death spiral with this idea of the marginal tax rates. So we have these complicated, complicated tax cutting arguments about I'm going to go, I'm going to go from 33 to 31 and a half or this, you know, just speaking of Bob Dole years ago, Bob Dole said, I'm going to give everybody a 15% tax cut. And I swear it took me like 20 minutes to realize he meant a 15% tax cut of the 33 or whatever percent I was paying. Not that he's going to lower taxes to 15%. It was completely baffling, but that's because we're, we, we, we kind of like this bizarre tax code, whereas in fact, if we went for a flat tax and said to whomever, all right, pick the number, and then because uh, let's not argue about the number. Let's just make it 20 or something, even if it's high. Then, then at least we know what a tax, high, a tax hike and a tax cut is. It goes from 20 to 19 or 20 to 21. And, and the idea that, we'll, well, that, that there'll be benefits to a flat, fair tax that 
that will be greater than the the, the than the the um than the, the the pain or whatever whatever the the effects the bad the, the bad effects are from a slightly higher margin a slightly higher flat tax rate. But we we on our side seem incapable of of of, of accepting that. Well, I mean, Does that make any sense? Well, look, the significant problem here, as 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 most people who you know do this for a living understand, is that you know when when the first wildly successful you know round of uh, of of, of the tax cuts took place in the United States in 1945 and then in 1963 and then in 1981. Um, marginal tax rates in this country were, you know, 80, 90, 70 percent, 60 percent. So if you cut, you know, and they were and there were all these steps and there were 15 levels. So if you cut the ta- marginal tax rates, um, everybody saw a benefit everywhere. Um, and now, when the code was simplified to a couple of you know to a couple of levels in which uh, n- as we now know notoriously, a lot of people actually pay very little or nothing in federal taxes though they pay payroll taxes um, the cutting the marginal tax rate does not have a bang for the buck. There right. is no bang for the buck wh- which when Reagan cut them from seventy to you know to from seventy to thirty or seventy that was an That's enormous. That was an enormous bang for the buck. And so the only real bang for the buck you can get is to do what you're talking about, which is a, whole, a wholesale restructuring of the tax code to make it simpler and fairer. And there is one huge roadblock. There is a colossal, enormous road. Well, there are two. There's one that's political, which is if you do that, you essentially vote Congress out of business because <laughs> the only way that Congress can manipulate or get, get things done without spending money is to add things or subtract things from the tax code is to add incentives or to, you know, build this up or to eliminate right. that so that they're not actually writing a check. You know, basically the check is written by the taxpayer or, uh, and the other of course, which is the biggest is the home mortgage deduction. So the right, you know, right. largest single deduction. And what you see there is it would make enormous sense, but you know, people have, that means that in in absolute numbers, everybody's home you know net worth drops twenty to thirty percent, and you know in the one largest thing that most you know sixty percent of households or sixty three percent of households own drops thirty percent instantly. Now everything drops thirty percent, so you can say, you know. That's across the board, and so it doesn't really have an effect because once you sell your house, what the next house you would buy would also be thirty percent cheaper. But it won't feel like that; it'll be cataclysmic, no. and it's an <clears throat> right. enormous problem. It it is the thing that makes it impossible politically until we really reach a huge crisis to do that. Now we did it once because we eliminated the second home deduction, but you know, in nineteen eighty six. But you know, this is a very big thing. And I, I don't know how it's confrontable. I, I, you know, I don't mean to be like a pessimist or you know, like a like a naysayer, but I just don't understand the circumstances in which it. it, it for somebody, out. for somebody who doesn't mean to be that, you're certainly doing a good job of it. I know. Um, Isn't that impressive? <laughs> it's sort of like a shark saying, you know, I don't mean to be so aggressive. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I really apologize for what I'm about to do and what I just did. You go, um, you go before the voters and say, I'm about to take away thirty yeah. percent of your wealth. Right. You know, 20% of your wealth, whatever, you know. It's very hard. You said, <laughs> well, 
so that your tax rate will go down by 5%. I mean, that's the problem ultimately is what you're exchanging is, you know, something that will be a benefit four years down the road probably. But anyway. But, John, did we – I mean, uh, this is a point of personal information. Did we actually get rid of the second home mortgage deduction? We didn't just yeah. jigger with it? No, you, you don't have a second. No, you could depreciate a second home if you rent it, but you don't have you 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 don't have a. Okay. Yeah, that was what tanked our real estate in Texas, as I recall. Really? Well, that's right. I, I lost a bath on my my Port Arthur, Texas condo. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. My yeah. Or, no, wait a minute. I mean, I, I'm confused about this. You 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 can. But there's part of it, it. It's hard to. It's hard to. Anyway, I'm 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 simplifying something as I'm looking up something here. And you're looking something up on the 14 year old Google. That's right. That's right. But I mean, you know, there were anyway. I, I I've got it right. Some of it is. Uh, some of it's eliminated. i in any case. Uh, we, you know, the the ending of ta- of the home of 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 homes as tax shelters. Let's yeah, say right. Real estate as right. tax shelters was done in 1986, and that was a very big deal. The tax um, shelters themselves have kind of like, I mean, they are now withering on the vine. Um, if, if you think about the, the whole myriad of products that were available in the, in the 50s and 60s to shelter income. Well, that's in part <laughs> because of the simplification of the tax code. Right. I mean, that's actually that that was actually one of the benefits of simplifying the tax code because it was all this people playing with these seaweed. You were in the 14th percentile, the 14th rate, but you bought something and put you in the fit, lowered your taxes to the 12th rate. You know, it was all no one actually paid that 90 percent rate. No, no one. Everyone parked their money and hid it someplace. Um, And for the record, just because I think people forget FDR pushed through. I think he got it pushed through the House, but it died in the Senate. uh, A. 100% 100% tax rate on incomes above $100,000. And like, I think it was 1937. Um, 100%. It should know, be 103%. You should owe money. <laughs> That's right. We no, take it, it all on you. People forget. It'll only be for money you earned above $100,000. <laughs> that was that year. Somebody should, I mean, maybe Jonah, you should do this as your, you know, as your, as your continuing investigation into, into sort of this kind of liberal leftist perfidy. But, the year 1937 was perhaps the craziest policy year in American yeah, history. Yeah. I mean, it was a no good, very he bad. Went, yeah, he yeah. went bonkers, <laughs> Roosevelt. He went absolutely bonkers. You know, he won the second election. He decided to pack the Supreme Court, <laughs> raise income taxes to 100, you know, to expropriate all incomes over $100,000. I mean, it was a. There were three or four other things too. I mean, he was he went they went they went crazy. Yeah, I mean, no, absolutely. That, I mean, it was the, that was the dawn of the second New Deal, which people always forget. People always talk about the New Deal as if it was one thing, and it was just a whole bunch of different crazy things happening one after another. Kind, so, kind of like now, uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, but I do like the idea that you would they would uh, that you made too much money, we've taken it all, and now we yeah you owe. <laughs> a, a, a negative tax rate. You just you start in the hole. I got a residual um, check or, or like residual statement for um, some Cheers residuals, which are now you know almost twenty years old. Uh, some of them are twenty years old, and um, so you know you get them every quarter, and it's just a list of you know a dollar this, dollar that, eleven dollars here or there. But there was like a whole bunch of them that were negative amounts. 
like it was a dollar six for a couple. It was negative a dollar six for a couple of runs of uh, episodes of Cheers that I wrote. I remember thinking, do I now do I now owe somebody a dollar six for running? <laughs> like, it was the strangest thing. It's just that it now has negative value. So they um, they just it doesn't have negative value. You just need to give a little more. You're very fortunate. You need to give yeah. a little more to the residual holders who are less fortunate. Believe me, I believe me. That is probably that's probably on the on the docket for the writer, the, the the writers guild the board members to to, to to bring up. I know we're running long here, um, yeah, but oh, sorry. Uh, uh, I know John saw it, but I don't know if Rob did. Did Rob? Did you see the master? I did not, but I'm excited. I read your review. Okay, well, You're so maybe excited? next. Don't be excited. <laughs> if you're oh, going no. excited, it's a problem. Say, whatever, whatever you do when you go see the master, do not be excited. Well, you know, I have a very good friend of mine, a good friend of mine who's an actor I worked with before, uh, for uh, much years ago, and we cast him in a part, and he was good. And then he was in a series we did, and he slowly got a little weird, and we discovered that it was because he was becoming a Scientologist. And this guy is really smart, Manhattan, right? You know, not not like. Smart parents, smart family, completely uh, went to fancy private schools in New York, completely unexpected. But he went kind of crazy and joined Scientology and became insufferable for 10 years. And then um, 10 years later, 11 years later maybe, I was having dinner with our mutual friend and I walked in the restaurant and there's a a table set for three. And he he says, guess who the third is? And in walks this guy. And I kind of roll my eyes. Oh, God, no. You know, I I, I don't want to deal with this. And he sits down and he says, I'm out of that thing. And he starts to talk about Scientology, which is what the story about the 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 movie we should say for people to know that um, is is uh, is kind of a a version of the the story of Scientology. Right. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. And he told me all the secrets. He un- he in love for for three hours. Everything you want to know about Scientology, he would answer. And um, it was kind of like this weird, creepy Scientologist version of, of my dinner with Andre, um, <laughs> uh, which we actually wanted to make exactly like that. That'd be know? a great movie, actually. Would it be good? Be yeah, good. That would actually be good as opposed to my dinner with Andre. <laughs> oh, oh, I like that movie. You didn't like that movie? I like that movie. Uh, yeah, I liked uh, I liked that movie. You know, I I lived that movie when I was in eleventh grade. It's about that kind of level of, you know, well, what is life and reality? And what is my happiness when I am dancing with the Ashanti Indians in a yurt? I, I, anyway, well, no one, was, no one on guy, earth no, knows what we're talking about. So let's. That guy turned out to be a total buffoon and poser, right? I mean, anyway, both we can them. talk. Yeah. Both yeah. Of them. yeah. 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 Right. Uh, so, what it was, we want to make that movie. But uh, so, so I'm, I'm eager to see this movie because I like P.T. Anderson's movie. But, but they're, they're all kind of. Except for Boogie Nights, they're all kind of bad, but they all have really good parts of them. So um, I'm excited. Well, I love – I actually – I'm a great – I love P.T. Anderson's work, the writer-director of, of, of The Master. Um, I did not like it. Um, I really didn't like it. I think that basically it's a movie about nothing that has nothing to say and he merged two disparate stories that must have been from two disparate scripts – one sort of weird, uh, psychotic character, rootless, post-war, shell-shocked uh, lunatic with this story of the founding of Scientology. They don't come together. The story of the founding of Scientology is bizarrely sympathetic 
to the L. Ron Hubbard character, who is seen as as though he's kind of a charlatan. He's also a good guy with he would mean well meaning, and he sees something in this guy that's never explained, and it goes on forever, and it's very pretty to look at and it makes no sense and it ends confusingly and there was an article in the Washington Post that said that he basically didn't have a script and they were winging it as they went along and uh, I was very, very disappointed by it. But you liked it. No, you can't. <laughs> uh, and I thought, yeah, I thought, I thought both Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman overacted preposterously. So, I, so aside from that, I loved it. Aside from that, you were totally into it. Jonah, yeah. yes, no? Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm softer on it than, than John is. I agree with him entirely that you kept waiting. Okay, so they've established all this stuff. Now the movie can start. And it just the, – the plot did not advance and the weird – clearly some of them clearly improved scenes um, that seemed to make sense in the chaos of the film production but really didn't make any editorial or thematic sense um, just start, start to pile up. And so I found them – I didn't think they overacted. I thought they were pretty compelling on the screen and they, they really drew you in. But after the first third of the movie, I was – you know, you start getting that, that feeling like, uh-oh, uh-oh. They don't, they don't plan to actually move the plot here, do they? Right. Um, and you start to squirm in your seat and by the end of it, right. you just start to get pissed off. You know, like, crap. They, they just didn't plan on actually making a movie here. They planned on putting – together a whole bunch of or didn't plan at all and ended up in and as the washington post piece made clear they basically strung together these scenes that seem like they're out of an acting workshop um less than actually sort of parts of a narrative concept of any kind right well i think basically when you read reviews that say this stunning movie is so enigmatic and rich that I must have multiple viewings before I can take that's, it all yeah, in. That's run, run in the other yeah. direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the worst part, not that this will mean anything to anybody under the age of 97, but uh, the, there, is a, there is a use <laughs> at one point in the movie of the great Frank Lesser song, Slow Boat to China, which is a song that I've sung as a lullaby to my children. And it's ruined. But no more. Forever. Because <laughs> it's turned into some weird homoerotic seduction repulsion thing. And, uh, you know, I really didn't need that. That was really unnece- an unnecessary, you know, sort of destruction of a deep family touching moment. So, yeah, for that, all together, I, would Rob. Like to, I, would like, I would like to request that Paul Thomas Anderson pay a lot more in taxes. <laughs> yeah, Rob, to, to, to tie it all together, the... The use of the Slow Boat to China song um, is exactly the album that would be being played in that scene we stopped you from describing with Joe Biden and Barack Obama in prison. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, you just saved me $9. So, uh... <laughs> hey, Peter Travers, is, 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 is he the most for sale reviewer in American life? I mean, I, I don't He's read not his... for sale. He thinks that that's an exuberant and touching comment that you just made, Jonah. One of the <laughs> finest comments on the Ricochet podcast this year. I just, that would be that. Hello, Oscar. <laughs> he always seems to be. I mean, I don't read his reviews at all. I don't read Rolling Stone, but like he all his blurbs always seem to be the one good blurb that makes it to a lot of really crappy movies. And now you know how he's kept. 
his employment for so long because he is a walking free advertisement for Rolling Stone as his name appears in ad after ad after ad after ad after ad. Yeah. Yeah. Because yes, he he likes uh, he likes most things, as far as I can tell, and and always has. And he has a mustache, and he's uh, he's got a nice mustache there. It's good to have a sunny disposition. Maybe we're amazingly enough, he has had that job, I believe, for thirty five years, which would make him like one of the longest serving, uh, you know, uh, movie critics, uh, you know, for a for a publication on Earth, and uh, no one's actually ever read a word he's written. So. It's, I think it's very impressive to, to maintain a paycheck for 35 years as a writer, but no one's actually read you. For a magazine aimed at young people. Yes. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, speaking of young people, fellas, we're, we're now uh, considerably older than we were when we started. We are indeed. We're actually um, well into the next podcast. We, we are well into it. That's right. We're sort of bumping up into James Dellingpole. Um, so... We'll, we'll, we'll do this again, but I don't think we, we may, not, may not do it before the debates. So here's my question to you about the debates. How will you know that we've won or that Romney's won the debates and how will you know that he's lost? I mean what, what – are you looking for any specific thing? I'm, I'm trying to avoid using the phrase like what does Romney have to do so that the, then we can say things like, hey, Romney did what he needed to do, which I think is stupid, but – but how will you know? Like, I, I think I know what I'm looking for. But what are well, you guys looking for? I, I'm looking for Romney to take his microphone, give one answer, then drop the mic on the stage and say, Romney out, bitches, and walk <laughs> off stage. <laughs> That'd be awesome. That would, I, um, I don't know. I, I, I think Romney needs to sort of – he needs to make Obama mad. I mean, I, 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 and yeah. I, I, by calling his BS, because I, I think Obama does get away with – it's amazing. It's like it, it's so rare. He does all of these interviews and he says things that are factually not true. And, you, and some of these journalists clearly know it, but they don't say, well, I'm sorry, that number is just wrong or, you know, you know, that's not what, you know, the PolitiFact says or something like right. that. Right. And I think both Romney and Ryan need to subtly and charmingly as best as possible so they don't come across as mean or all that kind of stuff. Uh, they need to get under the skin of their opponents and call BS on on their dishonesty in a way that forces errors. Yeah, I I don't really know I, here because I, I don't you know I don't entirely understand the dynamic here. Obviously, I don't think anybody does. The question is whether. Uh, there are, you know, people who are waiting to see. I think it's still the case that an enormous number of people have literally never heard Romney's voice. I mean, this is the oddity if you think about it. His convention speech was watched by, you know, 20 million people or something like that. 130 million people are going to vote. We only a couple million people watched the Republican debates. So it may well be that this is the point at which, when it's on all the networks and all that, that that. You know, fifty or sixty million people actually see him at at play for more than you know a minute or thirty seconds or something like that. And you know, maybe the circumstance is that there are enough people who are sort of looking for a reason to vote, not vote for Obama, and that he just seems to need a little bit like Reagan, let's say, to seem mm-hmm. not like the monstrous, plutocratic, out of touch. You know, evil, warmongering, you know, money stealing guy that he's been portrayed as being, and that he actually seems reasonable, forthright, 
intelligent, uh, that he's you know upbeat, that he's attractive, and that 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 could make a much bigger difference than we realize. Um, uh, I don't think it's that easy to predict. You know what will happen. I'm not sure that it's the case that he shouldn't be a little sharper than Jonah's suggesting simply to show that he's got an edge and that he's able to, you know, that he's passionate about wanting to be president, which is something that's kind of missing from, from this, that, you know, he wants to get into the white house so that he can save the country from the fate that he sees that it is. That's something that you need to show some feeling for. And, you know, he seems to have a very, some sense of somewhat low affect as a candidate. Um, now, I don't think I don't think that's bad necessarily, but he's he. I think he's got to make the case that he's somebody who will work his heart out for you every day if he wins. And I don't think he can do that by saying, "I, you're a nice guy, and I'm a nice guy, and I just want us to, you know, and I know you care and I care, but my the difference is that I'll help these people that you tried to help but you couldn't help." Yes, say if they go, you know, if goes goes on like this, you know, you didn't help them now, and you're, it's going to be worse. You're going to make everything's going to be worse if you win, not better. Everything is going to be worse, and here's why: because otherwise, why would you vote for him? I mean, so I, I I'm not. On yeah. the other hand, as I say, I think he does need to seem like he's somebody that you wouldn't mind having in your living room for four years. Right. Right. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm looking for one a version of this phrase, which is, "Mr. President, what planet are you on?" Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm looking for. I'm just looking for if I if I feel like if he says the message that you, what are you talking about? There's a bazillion people unemployed. The economy's stagnant. All this other stuff. What planet are you from? Yeah, you spent two and a half. You spent two and a half trillion dollars. Yeah, you know, you ra- you know, you raised. I and mean, this is the weird thing that you know, the other day you said you didn't raise, you know, you've raised ta- you raised taxes $683 billion, according to the Supreme Court, which announced that Obamacare was a tax. So what, mm-hmm. what are you, you know, yeah, who are you? Yeah. And, and, I, and I think some variation uh, captures the idea of, which I thought should have been the theme of the Republican convention of you've been too liberal for too long, right? Just this sort of idea that, gosh, this presidency seems like it's been going on forever. And all you do is propose one thing from the left after another. I mean, people forget this is still a country that describes itself as 40 percent of Americans describe themselves as conservative and only 20 percent describe themselves as liberal. And yet this yeah. campaign has been running away from the word liberal. Um, I think they should try and stick it on them. And, and the idea that the American public wouldn't be receptive to the idea of a guy who's taken over the car industry, student loans, the healthcare industry, and go down a very long list, spent yeah. all of this money on solar power – isn't too liberal. I mean, I just that makes no sense. But I think that since people aren't forcing that message down the voters' throats, um, you can't. They need a, they, people need the label. You know, they need to be told, ah, this is what explains what's been going on in Washington for four years. A really liberal guy has been screwing things up. Right. Well, you know, the yeah. other there's was, one was of those great old those great old attack ads. With, uh, I forget who that guy was from um, Arthur Finkelstein. Arthur Finkelstein. <laughs> yeah. Massachusetts is like, yeah, uh, you know, this kid too liberal for Massachusetts, hey, too liberal. Hey, for- buddy, you're liberal. That was <laughs> yes, <funny> right. Buddy <laughs> McKay running for yeah, senator. Hey, buddy, hey, buddy you're, you're liberal. liberal. <laughs> yeah, but, but, um, I love you know, One one thing I think that is very clear about this election, and that is a huge missed opportunity, and that is a result of weird trends on the right that 
are too long to talk about now, is the complete surrender on the topic of social issues. And I think one of the reasons that there is a real problem with the Romney campaign is that they assumed that they could connect with people simply by talking about the economy. And that turns out probably not to be enough. And that you need to say, you need to be the, well, Obama's got this, you share my values, because he says, I care about you, and I have a look, here's my wife, and here's my daughters, and they're so sweet, and I'm nice, and you like me in my living room. But, you know, the values thing is also, is, um, you know, this country is becoming too liberal. You know, schools are handing out the morning after pill. You don't have to be pro-life, you don't have to be pro-life to think 13-year-olds shouldn't be handed the morning after pill. You know, you don't have to be pro-life to think that the public should not pay for, con- you know, the, the, the public should not be paying for contraception, that, that you don't have to be, you know, whatever. I'm just saying that the Republican Party without a social, without a, without a conservative values message is a Republican Party that has removed one of its legs and it's hopping around on one foot. And, you know, uh, remember that in 2004, uh, oddly enough, um, a year that was largely fought over the issue of terrorism and the war in Iraq, that when asked uh, why people voted for Bush, 22% said they vote, their vote was on social issues and 20% said it was on terrorism. I mean, that's a very significant fact. People drop it because it's made everybody uncomfortable, but that's not, you know, there's no evidence. Mm-hmm. Um. Fellas, we're we're down like a minute twenty six. This is uh, we, we, this is we're, we're to 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 uh, Jerry Lewis telethon. Uh, you mean an hour twenty six? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, an hour twenty six. Yeah, it just felt like a minute. <laughs> when um, because, you I, I, because I only listened to myself. When I talk. <laughs> um, well, we've covered so many topics. I kind of feel like uh, I feel like this is sort of the rich meaty rich rich meaty goodness for our po- for our podcast listeners. Do, um, if you are listening and you got you actually got to hour twenty six, thank you very much. Please go to ricochet.com and join Ricochet. Uh, we will um, uh, we will be doing more of these podcasts, and of course, there's a lot of other great stuff on ricochet.com for your pleasure. Um, please also. Uh, while you're clicking around, go to commentary. That's uh, especially the contentions blog, which remains uh, to me one of the most interesting, great places to to go. And um, you can read uh, not not just John Pedorts, but you've got a whole uh, whole collection of great writers over there. Thank um, you. And of course, Jonah Goldberg. You know Jonah from the Corner NRO and from um, all of his million billion columns and his great books. Um, and Jonah, uh, you guys, are you going to be anywhere? Can, can anybody? Can, where, where can the fellows see you? Where can people see I'll be you? At, uh, I'll be at Giggles uh, in, in Columbus <laughs> on the nineteenth. Uh, great, with, great. With Corbett with uh, with Jerry Vale and Corbett Monica. Oh wow! Uh, so it's a so it's a it's a time machine kind of show. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I I will be in my office. So if anyone wants to come by my office, call first. All oh, right, Jonah, where are you going to be? Um, Don't you have a million speeches. Yeah, I got a bunch of stuff coming up. Um, let's see. I'm going to be um, at uh, the Asheville School in Asheville, North Carolina on the 11th. I'm going to be um, at Americans for a Prosperity event in New Jersey on the 13th. I'm going to be at Delta College on the 16th. These are all October. I'm, I'm going to be at the University of Virginia on the 17th for a debate with, with John Podorts' favorite person. Um, that's Peter Beinart. And then um, – I'm going to be at the, I think it's St. Louis University. Or I'm going to be in St. Louis, Washington, on the 25th. So there you go. No, I'll, I'll, put, I'll put all that in the corner for people who want to find it. You got some, uh, you got some tour dates coming up. Yeah. Uh, 
It's been a lot of fun. Let's do it again, and um, let's hope that we're um, our, our 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 optimism is uh, well founded. And next week we'll have a title. Next week we'll have a title. Yeah, title we have definitely, which I don't really like, but but we'll 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 come up with a cool one. Defiantly untitled. I mean, maybe that's the way to go. Uh, All right. Goodbye, guys. Uh, see you soon. Take care. See you soon. Hope alive. the conversation.